Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this conversation hosted by the Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, the RSA. I'm Stephen George, our Head of Communications. Our vision is for a world that is rebalanced, resilient and regenerative, where everyone can fulfil their potential. And our guest speaker today is perfectly placed to comment on how we might make progress towards that goal. He's a world-renowned thinker and communicator on economic theory. His books include Economics, The User's Guide, and 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. He hails from the Republic of Korea and came to the UK to study in the 1980s and now teaches economics in London. He believes that economics is for everyone. And in fact, an RSA animate of the same name is taken from a talk he gave for us a few years back and gives a great introduction to his philosophy. Hajin Chung, welcome back to the RSA. Hi, uh, hi, Stephen. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to this. I'm really glad to be back uh, here. You know, I launched uh, my previous uh, books uh, with Alice, RSA, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, very glad that uh, we are doing this. So Hajin's latest book, Edible Economics, aims to make challenging economic ideas more digestible by looking at them through anecdotes about food from around the world. Prawns, coconuts, carrots, bananas and chicken and many more besides are all thrown into the stew and provide lessons on fairness, equality, economic growth, the welfare state and globalisation. Hajin, it's it's a really absorbing read, and I've got lots of questions for you, including about the current economic situation in the UK. But before we get onto that, the floor is yours. Yes, uh, thank you. Yeah, I combined two of my greatest uh, passions in this book, food and economics. And yeah, the, let's uh, begin at the beginning. You know, the, the book uh, starts from when I first uh, came to Britain uh, back in 1986 uh, as a graduate student at the University of Cambridge, you know, my spoken English was poor. I still have that uh, thick accent, but uh, I, I, I could hardly speak then. Racial and cultural prejudices were rampant and the weather was rubbish. But the most difficult thing was food. You know, before coming to Britain, I had been warned by books uh, because uh, very few Koreans uh, then uh, had been to Korea at uh, Britain. I ha had been warned that uh, food in Britain was not the best, but when I came to the country and tasted the food, I just couldn't believe how bad it was. You know, everything was overcooked and bland, you know. Anything that was uh, considered foreign was avoided with uh, near religious uh, zeal and you know, at least for me, it, uh, what epitomized uh, the food culture of Britain in the 80s was uh, the pizza chain uh, called Pizza Land, uh, now, now defunct. Uh, pizza Land offered its customers an option to have their pizzas topped with a baked potato, just in case uh, the, the British people who are that, uh, not willing to eat uh, foreign food get traumatized by a foreign dish called pizza. So there, there was uh, this very parochial conservative food culture. But for me, the most difficult thing was that uh, Britain's uh, national enemy food-wise was garlic, which is the essence of life for Koreans. You know, the, as uh, it is uh, told in the book, uh, the garlic even features in our foundation myth. Yeah? 
So uh, when I uh, came to Britain, uh, not being able to eat that uh, enough garlic uh, was uh, very difficult. Of course, that uh, food scene in Britain is completely different now. And I think my theory is that uh, sometime back in the mid 90s, maybe late 90s, the British people had uh, a collective epiphany and accepted that their food sucks. But once they did that, it opened a huge horizon for them because once you admit that uh, your food is not the best, you know, uh, why should you prefer Mexican over Korean or the prefer Indian over Turkish? You know, anything taste is fine. So as a result, uh, the Britain has uh, become arguably the greatest uh, place to eat uh, in the world you know, because you can get anything and uh, it's got uh, a very vibrant and exciting food culture now. Unfortunately, while the, my food uh, universe was expanding at light speed, my other universe, uh, that is economics, uh, was uh, being sucked into a black hole. Because from the 80s, one particular school of economics came to dominate uh, our economic thinking. You know, until the 1970s, there were many the different schools of economics. I, I talk about this in my book, uh, Economics the User's Guide, uh, which uh, the RSA uh, turned into this uh, amazing animation. So thank you, RSA. And uh, the, you know, the, there were at least uh, nine main schools of economic, economics, uh, neoclassical economics, which is the dominant school these days, Keynesian economics, Marxist economics, developmentalist economics, Austrian economics meant that uh, quite a few others. And, and uh, that you could yeah that probably that talk about there being uh, 20 different schools of economics if you counted smaller schools that, that uh, split uh, bigger schools into sub-schools and so on. Anyway, so the, until the 70s, these uh, different schools were competing with each other. You know, sometimes they were engaged in a death match, you know. The Austrians and the Marxists had a death match at, uh, in the 20s and 30s. You know, the neoclassicals and the Keynesians had a death match uh, in the 60s and 70s. But uh, very often they were learning from each other, you know, the, sometimes stealing ideas, sometimes fusing ideas. I mean, it was actually more like uh, the food scene that, uh, in Britain today. Huh? I mean, all these uh, different uh, culinary traditions all being proud of uh, their own uh, tradition, but you know, the learning from each other, competing uh, with each other, I mean, the, the exchanging ideas with each other. Unfortunately, since the 1980s, economics has uh, become the British uh, food scene before the 1990s. There's only one kind of economics on offer. And this uh, has uh, created a very narrow and rigid uh, economic thinking. And uh, that is uh, what I have been uh, kind of uh, fighting against that, uh, that throughout my career. Now, people may ask, uh, well, why should I care if uh, a bunch of academics become narrow-minded and uh, engage in, say, intellectual monocropping, but, uh, like these economists? But I think uh, you should all care because economics is not like, I don't know, the study of Norse language or the, the, the 
astronomers that are trying to identify Earth-like planets uh, hundreds of uh, light years away because it has very significant and immediate impact on our lives. You know? I think I would go as far as uh, saying that democracy is meaningless in a capitalist economy without all citizens understanding at least some economics. You know? Because everything is bound up in the economic dimension. So the, the culture, you know, the national heritage, you know, education, health, all of these things have to somehow economically justify their existence. You know, I have some, uh, I have met some uh, British people who try to defend the monarchy by arguing that it brings in the tourist revenue. You know? Now, I'm not a monarchist, but what a demeaning way of uh, justifying an institution which you believe uh, to be at the foundation of your society. Eh? I mean, you have come to that, that uh, level. Eh? So when uh, so many collective decisions about almost every aspect of our lives are formulated and justified with the help of particular economic theory, you don't really know what you're voting for unless you understand at least some economics. Eh? Then you said that uh, like uh, voting for contestants in a uh, talent show. So that when you think about it, you know, that even if you don't necessarily know the economic uh, theories behind them, you all know that uh, economic theories affect government policies on taxes, welfare spending, interest rate, labor market regulations. I mean, we've seen the, uh, the how the, the important government policies are that, uh, through the experiences of uh, the last few weeks. Yeah? And these policies in turn affect our individual economic situations by influencing our jobs, working conditions, wages, repayment burdens on the mortgages or student loans, our rents. Yeah? But the economics does actually a lot more than that because given its uh, dominance, it has uh, basically come to shape our society in rather fundamental ways. Yeah? You know, different economic theories assume different qualities to constitute the essence of human nature. So the dominant uh, school of economics, uh, the neoclassical school, assumes that human beings are essentially selfish. Yeah? And the dominance of this theory has uh, normalized self-seeking behavior. And these days, uh, people who act in an altruistic way are either derided as uh, suckers, yeah, as the Americans call them, or are suspected of having some selfish ulterior motive. Yeah? And this has uh, created a society where it is uh, difficult to cooperate with each other, where it is uh, difficult to advocate a policy that, that, that takes that, uh, social collective interest into account. Yeah? Now everything's supposed to be about you know, individual gains or losses, and you know people are supposed to vote all according to their economic gains and so on, uh, gains and losses. And yeah, indeed, I mean this has uh, that, that, uh, clearly that been uh, proven wrong uh, through the Brexit vote. Yeah, because uh, I still remember David Cameron campaigning in favor of but uh, remaining in Europe with this uh, big uh, the, the check uh, with uh, some like, I don't know, 3,400 pounds 
uh, telling people that, that, that our estimate is that if you exit the European Union, everyone will be better off by 3,460 pounds on average. Yeah? But people said, no, I mean, that, that, that I don't care about the, the money as much as you think uh, that I do. You know, I uh, care about our sovereignty, you know, our the, the national identity. You know, however, the economists might uh, the think uh, these are misguided ideas. You know, people do care about these things. Anyway, so the economics even affects that, uh, what kind of society we have you know, by telling people this or that is um, normal economic behavior, this or that is a clever economic behavior and so on. So in this book, I am trying to lure people into thinking about economics and learning economics because it's so important in having a democratic uh, system that works. So I yeah, basically try to bribe my readers uh, with uh, interesting stories about food uh, at the beginning of each chapter, which are all named after some food ingredient. So that uh, Stephen uh, mentioned some of these, you know, the, the chicken, garlic, acorn. Well, you didn't know it. <laughs> you could uh, eat acorn. The Koreans uh, actually eat acorn, you know. The, so each uh, the chapter starts with uh, some story about uh, that food item. It could be, I don't know, the biological the nature of that the, the food item, could be the history surrounding it, could be my personal relationship with that food item. And then somehow I morphed those uh, full stories into an economic story. So the, hopefully the reader will start reading the chapter because they find the food story interesting. But then before you know it, uh, they'll be reading about economics. Now, how about that? Uh, be warned that this is not a book about economics of food, you know, how food is uh, produced and traded and consumed and wasted. Yeah? I mean, there are lots of good books about it. So the food the stories in my book are just uh, bribes uh, to lure the, the, the readers uh, into uh, thinking about economic issues and learning economics. It's a bit like uh, the, the ice cream that some of your mothers that uh, might have offered you uh, in order to induce you to the eat greens. Yeah? Uh, if you eat your greens, I'll give you an ice cream yeah, at the end of the meal. But uh, my bribe is even better. Yeah? because the bribe comes first. Yeah? So that, that you don't have to actually continue that, 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 to read that, that, the economic stories, but hopefully that, that my economic stories uh, should be interesting enough because I have uh, that, taken care to make it that, that, that very diverse. Yeah? I drawn different economic theories. I drawn examples from different countries. I talk about uh, many different aspects that, uh, of uh, the economic uh, world uh, today, you know, whether it's uh, automation, the migration, you know, climate change, uh, the care work, you know, inequality. So hopefully that uh, the uh, main dish uh, that is economics that uh, should be interesting enough. But, you know, if you don't uh, like that, uh, you can just uh, stop after you eat the ice cream. Eh? Anyway, uh, to conclude, uh, you know, Actually, when it comes to food, most people agree that we should have an open mind and try different things. Yeah? I mean, uh, it, this country actually has uh, proven that. Yeah? 
I mean, this uh, deeply conservative uh, the food culture has been completely transformed into something marvelous because people decided that uh, to be open-minded and uh, try different things. So that uh, I urge my that, that readers uh, to do the same with the economics. Yeah? Uh, that, that there are all these that, that different economic theories. Uh, they all have uh, their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, that, that a healthy di diet of uh, economic ideas uh, should include you know, different that, that schools of economics drawn from different uh, countries, you know, explore the, the philosophy and the, the politics behind the economic ideas. And yeah, I hope uh, my book uh, uh, contributes uh, to encouraging uh, the people to think about economic issues and learn economics in a more diverse and interesting way. Thank you very much. Ajun, thank you so much. And I, I, you're right, your, your book definitely lures you in with the, with the tastes and smells of, of, of world cuisine and then uh, then you get the then you get the economic lesson uh, afterwards, which is definitely the way forward. I would say. Um, so look, we'll delve more into the tasty morsels in your book shortly. But I, I can't begin without asking you about the current uh, economic and political turmoil in the UK. Mm. So for context, we're recording this conversation on the twenty first of October, twenty twenty two. So that's less than twenty four hours after the resignation of the UK Prime Minister Liz Truss. Things are moving very fast and very unpredictably. So by the time everyone's listening to this, much may have changed. So Hajun, accounting for that and from where we stand today, what's gone wrong and what can be done to put it right? Oh, I think uh, Britain's uh, economic uh, malaise uh, goes back much further than the current conservative government. You know, it uh, uh, all started uh, with uh, Mrs. Uh, Thatcher in the 1980s. Now, in the 1970s, uh, the post-war economic consensus of uh, Britain broke down. So new model of uh, the capitalism based on the welfare state and active intervention by the government into international trade and uh, industry and so on that model broke down and uh, what it replaced was that uh, Thatcherism. And Thatcherism uh, did this uh, original experiment uh, with uh, so-called trickle-down economics, yeah? cut taxes and uh, encouraged that uh, the privatized uh, state-owned enterprises and deregulated the economy. Now, among uh, the supporters of uh, conservative uh, economic program, there's this myth that Mrs. Thatcher came in and fixed the economy. But actually, if you look at the, the economic uh, the, the data, the rate of uh, economic growth during uh, the Mrs. Thatcher's rule was actually lower than the, the, what the, it was uh, in the 1970s. More importantly, the rate of investment as a proportion of uh, GDP was actually lower than in the 70s. Yeah? Now, this is a, a big problem because the, 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 the justification for tax cuts and deregulation was when you do that, there'll be more investment and there'll be more growth. Yeah? It did not happen. Yeah? 
so that the current, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say current, <laughs> that the trust that the, the, the government was trying to you know, but, uh, reintroduce uh, the debt rate program, put it on a turbo charge, and hope uh, that this will uh, get the British economy out of uh, the doldrums, which it had been at least uh, since the days of uh, the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. But what was even more kind of uh, problematic is that uh, the conditions that, uh, that this program was uh, introduced were not even similar to what the, the, the Margaret Thatcher faced. Yeah? At that point, you could at least uh, theoretically accept that, yeah, maybe if you cut taxes, yeah, the investing class will invest more. Maybe if you deregulate the economy, there'll be more business activities. It was that, uh, actually not the case, but at that, in 1980, you could yeah, maybe uh, think that. Yeah? But uh, now, I mean, the, 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 you know that, that uh, those things uh, didn't happen. More importantly, in the last uh, 20 years, the supply-side uh, capacity of uh, the British economy has been uh, seriously eroded you know, because uh, the economy basically has been uh, driven by the, the financial sector seeking short-term gain. You know, the rate of uh, investment in the British economy, which uh, used to be 27, 28% uh, during the 70s, 24, 5% during the Thatcherite years. In the last uh, that 10, 12 years, uh, it has been like at the level of 16, 70%. Yeah? So with that, uh, such a little investment, you know, the supply capacity uh, is uh, seriously eroded. I mean, you do not have enough uh, the, the ability to produce things. Yeah? So now we have uh, the, the two problems. First of all, you have an investing class which doesn't invest. Yeah? And you cannot even argue that uh, the tax rate was so high, like in the 70s, cutting them would uh, make a huge difference. No, the, you don't even have that. Yeah? But more importantly, even if uh, the, the, the you give uh, tax cuts, and even if uh, that is a uh, non-investing investing class that uh, invest, the supply side responses that uh, is uh, going to be very feeble. Yeah? Because you don't have uh, the workers with uh, the right skills. Uh, you, you don't have uh, the, the necessary infrastructure. Yeah? You don't invest in R&D as much as other countries do. Yeah? You know, that even today, the, Countries like Germany, Switzerland, uh, Sweden, they invest uh, 25, 26% of their GDP. Huh? I mean, not to speak of uh, countries like Korea, which uh, invest uh, 30%. Britain invests 16, 17%. Yeah? And in that kind of uh, the, the, uh, situation, cutting taxes, I mean, isn't going to bring about the supply side response. Yeah? So this is uh, a was uh, the, such a the ill-conceived uh, the attempt to reverse uh, the decline of the British economy. But uh, you know, the, we have to realize that the problem goes uh, deeper and further back in time. Yeah? I mean, that you need a serious uh, the, the redirection of the economy that involves a major investment drive, yeah? which uh, has to be the politically engineered. Yeah? I mean, if you want to cut taxes for the rich people, you have to 
somehow come up with a scheme that uh, these uh, tax cuts uh, will go to investment. Unless you make that, that uh, political deal, I mean, that uh, whatever program you have, uh, British economy will uh, not uh, recover. So do you think, I mean, you talked about politics uh, and economics there a lot. Do you think that politics and ideology make it impossible, really, to create a truly fair global economy that works for everyone? Oh, yeah, no, it's uh, not just ideology. I mean, there are a lot of uh, you know, naked uh, self-interest. Yeah? You know, that, uh, for example, the, the rich countries you know, uh, having lower tariff or even no tariff on raw materials but as soon as uh, developing countries that uh, process them, they slap a uh, high tariff, yeah? thereby uh, discouraging the, the, the economic development. Yeah? So th- there are, I mean, so many of those things that uh, I cannot even begin to uh, talk about them, but uh, there are that, that, that this uh, naked self-interest, but yes, I mean, ideology has uh, played a very important role because that uh, you have uh, the, the, these people the, whose economic interests objectively actually do not lie with the, the neoliberal the programs that the, the Tory party has been pushing for the last few decades, voting for that party and blaming the, the, the problems to immigrants like myself and you know, foreign countries and so on. So, I mean, that, that has that, that made it very difficult to have a rational conversation about the economic policy, but that's exactly why I'm writing the kind of books that I write, you know, because uh, everyone has to understand at least uh, the, the basics of economics that uh, before we can have a rational conversation and uh, hopefully uh, the, the new political deal to uh, put the British economy on another footing. Yeah, I mean, you said earlier in, in, in the talk about how people need to understand what they're voting for uh, in many ways. and. But a few of us have got your decades of experience in, in the economy. So for us novice cooks, if you like, um, whose recipes should we try first? You know, which chefs make the easiest economic meals for us to digest? Yeah, well, I, I think that we all have different you know, ethical positions, different political views. So that, uh, first of all, that we have to accept that economics is uh, not a Kind of purely technical thing, yeah. You know, for example, that, that, that in you know calling for economic growth, yeah. That, that say Liz Trust, she she was that uh, that uh, advancing this uh, particular view that uh, aggregate growth in material production is what uh, determines uh, social welfare. I mean, it's a you know respectable position, but uh, there are many other positions. Yeah, some people will, some economists will argue that you know that that income needs to be the equally distributed. Others will put emphasis on the social mobility. Yeah? So that they will say, even if uh, the, the income, is, uh, uh, income distribution is unequal, if you have a uh, good uh, social mobility, that's a good society. Yeah? And uh, you can have uh, many different uh, the positions on whether uh, growth is uh, counted uh, in the right way. You know, environmentalist, uh, environmentalist will say we are not counting the damages that uh, the growth is that are generating on the environment. And uh, we have to, uh, once you count them, actually what you call growth is, isn't even growth uh, because it's uh, that, uh, reducing our welfare. Yeah? Others that uh, might not uh, go to 
that extreme, but, but uh, the, they uh, would argue that the market is a very bad judge of uh, what is uh, socially valuable. You know, we've uh, seen that, you know, that during the pandemic, you had uh, all these uh, the, the people working in NHS, uh, the, the school teachers, uh, working in supermarkets, uh, producing foods, uh, designated as uh, the key workers, but uh, the, the market says otherwise. You know? The market that, that, that basically, except for a small group of uh, the top medical doctors, all the key workers are poorly paid. You know? So the market has uh, the, the basically contradicted this uh, notion of key worker. They are not key, you know? they are not important, you know? because that, uh, if they were important, they should be uh, paid better. Yeah? So there are that, that, that many kind of ethical and political issues involved in the, uh, our economic uh, decisions. So I think uh, the first uh, step is actually to fully understand what are the political, uh, sorry, ethical the, the, and then political foundations of a particular economic argument. So I'm but, yeah, making it that, that, that sound more difficult, but uh, once you, understand these uh, the, the fundamental things, it becomes actually a lot easier to uh, learn the rest, yeah? I mean, it's uh, like cooking, you know, that uh, you need to learn the basic things. And once you know them, you know, then uh, you can apply those uh, basic principles uh, to do many different things, yeah? You mentioned uh, care workers there, and, and I was really attracted by your um, chapter on chicken, which kind of gets into the detail of some of the things that the RSA says in its vision about equality and fairness. Mm. Um, so I wondered if you might delve into that chapter a little bit more for us now. Yeah, actually, that chapter that uh, starts with uh, arguably the weirdest uh, story in the book. Uh, the story is that uh, when I was a graduate student, I had this uh, Indian friend uh, who uh, traveled uh, back home uh, with the uh, Aeroflot, uh, which then was uh, the Soviet airline. Right? I mean, according to him, I never uh, taken the Aeroflot uh, during the Soviet days uh, because uh, as uh, South Koreans, uh, which were on the other side of uh, the Cold War, that uh, we, we are not allowed to travel on them. But, you know, according to my friend, that uh, the airline was uh, awful in every single way. Right? I mean, the, the bad food, loot, uh, service uh, problem with punctuality, and uh, apparently that this cold white goose bumpy chicken was uh, the, the the only meal available on every flight, yeah? and uh, passengers uh, hated it. But you know they uh, just uh, kept quiet and ate it. But one day this. Uh, uh, Indian passenger had an audacity to ask the stewardess uh, to bring him uh, something else because he's a vegetarian. And the stewardess uh, kept, no, you cannot uh, have uh, anything else. Uh, this is a socialist airline. Everyone is equal. Yeah? You cannot have a special treatment. So that story got me thinking, you know, that uh, in thinking about uh, the equality, the people on the left uh, have often ignore the, the differences in people's needs. Yeah? Well, the socialist principle that uh, is uh, the, a very the, the, the noble one, the, because it says everyone is uh, equally valuable the human being, 
and everyone should be treated the same. So whether you are a government minister or an engineer or the, the cleaner, you will get uh, your annual pair of shoes, you will get uh, your daily ration of uh, bread and sausages. And you know, it that, uh, is uh, a very that, uh, powerful that, uh, statement, but what was missing there was that, uh, that these people failed to see that different people have different needs. Yeah? Some people are vegetarian, yeah? even like bread, you know, if uh, the bread is that, uh, uh, wheaten bread, uh, labeled wheaten bread. I mean, the celiacs uh, cannot eat it. You know, Jewish people that are observing Passover cannot eat it. You know, so unless that uh, you take care, uh, take into account these that uh, the differential needs, you cannot uh, build a truly fair society. But uh, the problem with that uh, equality is uh, not just on the left, but on the right too, because that uh, on the right, that uh, the emphasis on emphasis is on equality of opportunity. So the right-wing defense of uh, the high levels of inequalities, you know, that, uh, as far as that uh, people had equal uh, opportunity to compete, we have to accept uh, that result, however unequal it may look uh, to some, some of you, because uh, that's the way uh, to kind of uh, use uh, the people in the most uh, productive way. I mean, so the, the argument is that uh, if uh, everyone starts from the same starting line, you have to that, uh, accept the result. But uh, my question to them is, is it really a fair race if uh, some uh, contestants have only one eye and some of them have only one leg? Yeah? No, I mean, that uh, starting on the that, uh, same starting line, that is equality of opportunity, doesn't mean that it is fair because uh, these people have uh, that, uh, failed to consider differential capabilities of different people. Yeah? And these uh, differential capabilities partly come from the inequality of uh, outcome. Yeah? Because unless you raise uh, all children in the collective uh, creature, like uh, the Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, you know, people that, uh, sorry, children that are growing up in the poor families, they are going to have uh, the, the, their brain development uh, arrested uh, because of malnutrition. They are uh, going to have uh, the, their education uh, disrupted because they are hungry uh, during the classes. You know? So unless you provide uh, some degree of equality that will guarantee that every child has at least uh, the minimum capabilities, you, know, you cannot uh, call a race fair only because that, that, uh, it gives uh, the equal opportunity to compete. Yeah? So at, uh, in the, this chapter, I'm uh, trying to argue that uh, both on the right and the left, uh, the equality has been kind of, uh, conceived in a very unidimensional way. So not only do we have to look at the outcome as uh, the, the socialists uh, that uh, emphasize and opportunity as uh, the, uh, the right uh, has emphasized, we also need to look at uh, the needs and capabilities. Yeah? We need uh, this more diverse, that, that, uh, uh, sophisticated uh, perspective uh, to truly deal with uh, the problem of uh, inequality. I mean, that point you make there about being more sophisticated, I mean, we talk a lot at the RSA about economic security and what that means for individuals. And often those 
macroeconomic measures that we have to define growth and success totally miss how real people feel about their own economic reality. Uh, what can governments do better on that front? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, we have to uh, recognize that, uh, you know, growth is at the calculated on aggregate basis. Yeah? So the fact that uh, a country grows uh, fast doesn't mean that everyone is uh, benefiting. Yeah? So you have to uh, create mechanisms where these uh, benefits uh, can uh, flow into less uh, privileged people, which is one role that uh, the welfare state uh, provides. Yeah? Uh, sorry, the welfare, uh, one role that uh, the welfare state plays. Yeah? So when the, the economy grows uh, faster, there will be more tax revenue, and then that the, this can be plowed uh, back into helping the people who are not uh, the necessarily benefiting from this uh, process. Yeah? But uh, more importantly, you know, I would uh, argue that uh, giving economic security is uh, the, the even the good for growth. Yeah? Because uh, when the people have uh, the, the too much insecurity, they become conservative, yeah? and not in the political sense, but you know, in the sense of not wanting to try new things. Yeah? When they don't have uh, security, they become resistant to changes. Yeah? You know, for example, the, 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 in the US, uh, you don't have uh, the public health insurance, not to speak of NHS. Uh, so the, the American workers uh, the, usually get uh, their health insurance uh, from their employers. Yeah? So if you get unemployed, uh, you cannot even go to hospitals. Yeah? So this is why American workers, of course, uh, most of them are ununionized and uh, the, cannot uh, resist uh, the, these changes. But uh, most of the unionized American workers are actually against uh, technological progress yeah? because it means that uh, they are going to be thrown uh, to the scrap heap of uh, history. Yeah? In contrast, in countries like uh, the, the Sweden and Finland, where the, there's a good welfare state uh, which guarantees uh, the minimum uh, standard of living, which uh, provides uh, unemployment insurance yeah? uh, generously that uh, 60, 70% of your yeah, kind of, uh, normal wages are paid through unemployment uh, insurance and, and uh, provides uh, the, a lot of uh, the subsidized uh, retraining in those countries, workers are not that resistant uh, to technological uh, progress because, yeah, I mean, who likes to lose their jobs? But, you know, they will have some job, yeah? not necessarily the current one, and most likely a better one yeah? because uh, that you get retrained in the new skills and so on. So, yeah, the, the, when you do that, uh, actually it becomes easier for companies to upgrade and restructure their businesses because uh, workers are not uh, resistant uh, to changes. Yeah? So actually, uh, we need to uh, have a more kind of uh, comprehensive view of the welfare state, yeah, which often is uh, missing across uh, the political spectrum. Yeah? Because that, uh, some people on the left that uh, only see it as a kind of redistributive uh, mechanism. Yeah? Some people on the right uh, that, that have the same view, but that uh, say that this is uh, an awful thing for the economy. Yeah? Whereas uh, if you design it well, you can actually that, uh, be even uh, good for growth. You know, the, I, I'm told uh, by Swedish friends that in the 1950s, the slogan of the, one of the slogans of the Swedish uh, Social Democratic Party was that 
and I'm quoting them, secure people there. You know? Only when you know that, 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 that trying new things, changing jobs, you know, acquiring new skills that, that, that doesn't that, that put you at the risk of uh, the, the penury, you will do those things uh, more willingly. A couple more questions before we mm-hmm. close, Ajahn. In our current situation, most of us uh, around the world are looking at our governments, wherever we are, and, and hoping that they have some levers that they can pull that will fix things. Is it a question of new people being put in charge of those levers, or do we even have the right levers to pull? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm not a political scientist, uh, so I don't think I can uh, say many uh, useful things uh, there. But I think uh, what uh, is uh, the problem at the moment, I mean, not everywhere, of course, that, uh, in many countries, is that people have become very, if you like, short-sighted because they don't see much hope for the future. And it's actually the absence of mobility, absence of future change, uh, the poverty of uh, future prospect that are driving people into the arms of this uh, short-term oriented uh, populist uh, politician. So I think that uh, what is uh, more important is that uh, to create uh, the sense of hope for the future rather than you know, trying to kind of fix that uh, things uh, for the present. I mean, of course, that, that, that there are a lot of things to be fixed uh, for the present, but we just uh, stop it there. You know? If you say, okay, I mean, we have uh, starving children, so let's uh, give out more free school lunch. You know? I mean, that might solve uh, the immediate problem, but uh, it uh, still that, that doesn't create uh, that sense of hope uh, for those children and, and their families. You know? So we need to create a system where you know, that, that you can, that people can have uh, that, uh, more sense of hope well, beyond that, uh, that uh, general level, uh, I don't think I'm uh, quite qualified uh, uh, to comment on how to fix the political problems. Well, so finally, then, you, you mentioned hope. Um, maybe uh, what is it that gives you hope for the future? You know, given the turmoil and uncertainty in the economic dining room at the moment, what, what gives you uh, hope for the future and if you can't do that just give me a, a great uh, Korean recipe that we should all try <laughs> no no yeah I, I'm but uh, yeah you know I live by the, the kind of uh, dictum of uh, the Italian Marxist of the early 20th century the Antonio Gramsci that uh, you should have uh, pessimism of the intellect but optimism of the will you know? And yeah, in the long run, I'm uh, uh, quite uh, hopeful because of the young generation. You know, this uh, that, 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 uh, young generation has uh, really that, uh, stepped up to the challenge that uh, they are very conscious of uh, climate change. Uh, they are very active in that, that, uh, taking actions uh, about it. You know? I mean, that, that more narrowly within the economics that uh, since the 2008 financial crisis that uh, we have seen this uh, movement uh, by students calling for the reform of the economics uh, curriculum. Of course, uh, the, the establishment uh, resisted uh, very strongly so that uh, we haven't seen a lot of changes, but those people have uh, created uh, this awareness uh, that uh, teaching of economics has to change. 
And many of them are now uh, doing uh, bigger campaigns. I mean, the, many of them are engaged in the kind of uh, educating uh, the general public in the economics, uh, also learning from the general public how economics uh, should change uh, to reflect uh, their uh, life uh, experiences. Yeah? And that, that some of these people have gone into government economic services and central banks and yeah, of course, uh, they are still junior, so they cannot make uh, huge changes. But uh, I, I know that uh, many of them have been kind of, uh, arguing for different approaches, yeah, uh, and yeah, made made some inroads, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm but, uh, very hopeful that uh, the young generation uh, has uh, that uh, really the, this uh, the kind of perspective and. Uh, willingness and uh, more importantly organizational uh, skills uh, to change our society so yeah i, I think that uh, we uh, should uh, uh, live in hope Hajun, thank you so much um, you. the book edible economics uh, a hungry economist explains the world is out now uh, you can find it online and in bricks and mortar bookshops everywhere although we have a special discount with foils if you follow the link on the rsa's event page if you like what you've heard, please delve into the archive of hundreds of previous RSA events and look at our website for the impressive series of future ones we have planned, all for free. Also online, you'll find our new Design for Life mission, which follows in the best traditions and ambitions of the RSA, providing a clear-eyed diagnosis of current challenges, a hopeful vision for better futures and an inspiring plan for how to get there, supported by our global network of fellows and thinkers and speakers like Hajun. If you'd like to join the RSA's growing fellowship, you can find the details online and in the chat. But for now, thank you for listening. And Hajun Chung, thank you for coming back and speaking to us at the RSA. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.